The Gamby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional territories of the Quiquitlam, Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabek, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat peoples. It's March 29th, 2023, and there are 1,298 days left until the Vancouver Municipal Elections. This is the Camby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Happy post-spring break. Happy post-spring break, he said to the guy who does not have children or is in school. Uh, I mean, you you had a break in the spring, so yeah, my leg, I fractured my fibula, and we had a little bit of a break in recording as schedules just failed to line up, and here we are, a few weeks late, or you know, a little later than we intended. But council took a little bit of a break for the past few weeks, but there's still lots and lots of stuff happening. But before we do that, we have to always beg for money. Yes, patreon.com slash report. patreon.com slash report. patreon.com slash report. Just go there, give us money. Please. All right. So, what's the big news in Vancouver this week? It is, of course, how, I guess, safe and secure our elections are, except not really, because it's a bit of a silly story. China! Yeah, so this one dates back to March 16th. This is a big story that came out in the Globe and Mail from Bob Fife, Stephen Chase, and international correspondent Nathan Vanderclip, who I've never seen share a byline with the other two, but the other two have quite a few exclusives for the Globe. China's Vancouver consulate interfered in 2022 municipal election, according to CSIS. This follows a series of leaks from our you know, intelligence agency, our national security agency, which apparently is a sieve these days, that is impugning another election. We've already had the federal elections of 2019 and 2021 impugned, as well as a nomination battle in Ontario for a liberal candidate. And now it's Vancouver's turn, where we are hearing that the 2022 election was under deep scrutiny from China's consul general in Vancouver, Tong Xiaoling. Yes, so Council Tong was apparently, quote-unquote, grooming uh, local politicians for office who were sympathetic to China. In mid-November 2021, Tong allegedly talked about organizing the Chinese diaspora uh, in Vancouver in order to elect a new mayor that was friendly to the People's Republic of China. Specifically, uh, the article states, quote, with regards to the 2022 City of Vancouver mayoral election, Council General Tong stated that they need to do all they could to increase the ethnic voting percentage. They needed to get all eligible voters to come out and elect a specific Chinese-Canadian candidate, according to the document. I, I love the interference in our election being get people to vote. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Damn them. I, I mean, like, okay, so I am of two minds about this. One... This is a little bit hilarious. Like they they absolutely should not be doing this. Like it's not it's not cool. Don't stop it. But also if you want to spend money doing like basic voter 
like voter turnout stuff, I guess that's okay. I mean, in terms of election interference, that's like very much the low. Like, it's kind of stuff that the government should be doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Our our own government, that is. Yeah, our own government, not not another government. <laughs> So the report from CSIS doesn't say who the preferred candidate of the Consul General in Beijing was. Nevertheless, the story goes on to start talking about Lenny Zhou, who was ultimately elected with the ABC slate, like in the next paragraph. And it notes he came to Canada from Beijing He, when he was a grad student. He was the first to speak Mandarin at Vancouver Council meetings. And then they go and find Louis Huang, a former Shanghai pediatrician and critic of the Chinese government, who says that he thinks he remembers meeting Zhao five or six years ago and said he was absolutely in support of the Chinese government. Now, they've found no one else who corroborates this story. And Huang later went to Twitter to apologize to Zhao, saying, no one in our group remembers Lenny Zhao has ever attended our seminars or meetings. I felt very sorry for the confusion and misunderstanding to Lenny Zhao. Okay, so that sounds like a, what, what is the word? Steaming pile of bullshit. Borderline slander. I'm not even sure it's borderline. Like, that, that sounds, like, defamatory to me. Like, to say that a politician is, like, in the tank for a foreign government and was, like, th this is, this is like, serious allegations stuff. Like, it it's one thing if China is doing some meddling, I don't know, where I kind of expect that they are doing it. They're, they're a superpower flexing their muscles, and there's a large Chinese diaspora in Canada. They shouldn't be doing it, but I'm not, like, shocked that they are. Uh, they, you know, we... They, you know, they absolutely should be hauled into the Minister of Foreign Affairs, sorry, Global Affairs office and given a dressing down, if not, you know, expelled. But, like, if, if you're actually a politician who, like, is being accused of this stuff, that that is a serious allegation. Yeah, so it's... Like, it's wild how this story progressed. It It goes into a little more detail because it tries to make the case that China was particularly mad at Kennedy Stewart because Stewart had taken a number of steps while he was mayor to criticize China. He applauded the vice president's trip to Taiwan and generally pissed off China in the broad sense. They then interviewed Kennedy Stewart, and it's this bit at the end where it was really weird in the story for me, the statements he makes. So he says his invitations to Chinese-Canadian community events petered out especially when Ms. Tong was present. So he quotes, I have gone to many rallies and events, but I noticed on the ground there was a local, there was a bit of a local chill. And in fact, I was warned by some other counselors who are no longer sitting that I was really playing a dangerous game. They would definitely invite her, the consul general, and not me. He says donations to his campaign dried up about three weeks to the vote. It's pretty common for the development community, he says, to have a little breakfast or lunch and have 25 people come and they'd buy tickets for 1200 bucks. <laughs> then it just stopped, and part of my suspicion is that much of the financing for the development in the city comes from China. It's Chinese investors who are financing different projects, especially luxury buildings downtown. All of a sudden, folks that I had worked with for four years, the money wasn't coming in. He doesn't go as far as to say he lost the elections because of Beijing interference efforts, though. Okay, so, I mean, th there's a lot to unpack there. Number one, wait, what is he trying to do? Like, I, I am 
I, I am so skeptical of the idea that uh, it's that that like for the reason of Chinese interference alone, like Chinese government interference alone, was the reason that money stopped coming in. I think the development community kind of saw which way the wind was blowing. That's where the money started going. Kennedy ran a incredibly, incredibly bad campaign. It was like abysmal. There were so few like people out knocking on doors and actually, you know, doing the boots on the ground stuff. He was running a kind of anemic campaign himself. He didn't inspire anyone. It, like, it's no wonder that the money stopped coming in. As Kerry Jang, former Vision Vancouver City Councilor, said, quote, I think Kennedy lost because he was a lousy mayor. It was that simple. Should be noted that Jang voted for him and campaigned for him in 2018 as well. Yeah, like, maybe you should have spent less time working on that book. As well, forward candidate Russell Vuong went to Twitter to defend Lenny Zhao, saying he sees no reason to think he is being groomed by the Chinese Communist Party. He's friends with Lenny, so, you know, I, I, there's someone reaching across the aisle and saying... I, I, I don't know. I, I find part of this is, like, a very interesting little window into what life is like in the Foreign Service to me. Like, do I think they were doing this? Yeah, I, I absolutely think the Chinese consulate was was doing some stuff that they probably shouldn't have. But like, your your world is like a kind of very small when you're you're running a consulate or an embassy, like especially especially at the level of a city uh, where you're the consul general, like in Vancouver, you you do have to like be very aware of how local politics is is functioning and you have to have a working relationship with these people it, like i'm not like super comfortable with the the idea that consul generals of other you know states are raising money for candidates i think that's a little weird uh, but am i surprised that they're attending fundraisers no i don't know it it just seems that kennedy is acting like an incredibly sore loser here yeah, I don't know that there's much more to say on this story. Like, it's just wild to me that CSIS didn't have more, or at least that the Globe, of what the Globe got, this is all they had. Like, the headline starts off shocking, and you dig into the details, and it's like, Ambassador of Nation X really would love it if people of that ethnicity won, which doesn't seem like a scandal at no. the whole, until you put it in context of China. Like, yeah, I agree. They should not be campaigning and trying to, like, push for a specific outcome. But we don't have allegations they did anything beyond just, like, had a preference here. Maybe those allegations exist, but we haven't been given them. And then for the Globe to put Lenny Zhao's name in there is just fucking irresponsible. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's true. I, I think that they shouldn't have done that. Uh, like, if, if there is something there, then... Like, CSIS should absolutely be investigating, but they are, of course, like, security service, and they should keep their business, what is the word? Secret. And make a referral to the RCMP if and when the time is appropriate. Well, this isn't the only thing that seems to be going wrong for Kennedy Stewart in the past couple weeks. We also got a story that small business in Burnaby, this is 
Tim Melito, who owns Town Rent, has been stiffed to the tune of $2,800 as Ford Vancouver has failed to pay the furniture rental bill. Like, oof. So basically, the, the story here is this guy rents out office supplies, not office supplies, like office furniture and that kind of thing, to campaigns. It's- can't really buy that kind of stuff. They're expensive, and so there has to be a a way that they lease these things on a short-term basis to, like, fill up their office space. This guy has been in the business of doing that for years. He has supplied desks and such to many a political party over the time. However, this time, things have not worked out quite as well, and for the first time in his operational history, he has been shortchanged by a political party and who apparently massively overspent and could not meet their obligations at the end of the day. What's even more wild in here, so Melito, the business owner, has said he, you know, gave an extension on the the bill for this, on the invoice, but then he was given a debt management proposal from campaign manager Neil Moncton that said, Forward Together would make three payments in 2023, amounting to 10% of the total for the outstanding invoices for work pre-October 15th. In other words, they'd give them $280 by the end of this year. And if they find their revenue increases, they'll try to exceed 10% of what they owe. I, I, I understand that like raising money is hard and overspending is a temptation like going doing debt financing is like a, a huge temptation for these political campaigns but like at some point i kind of feel like the risk should be borne by the bank like if you are if you are extending a loan to a political party and they don't win like the the candidates themselves like they can't they can't make them they they can't break campaign finance law basically they can't do these Mm -hmm. donations they can't exceed those donations themselves i i kind of feel like there there needs to be some kind of amendment to the bc elections act to allow for the writing off of debt like of expenses after the campaign in the event that a bank lends them a campaign loan because like someone should have made like someone has made a risk assessment here and it was bad Mm -hmm. yeah like the issue here is melito shouldn't be on the hook for the failures of the Forward Together campaign. Yes. Yeah, but like, obviously. Nor, nor necessarily should Forward Together, really. Like, they, like they should absolutely have, have like, continue to uh, have to try, like, make best efforts to continue to raise money. But, like, realistically, their party is dead. And mm-hmm. no one gives money to dead parties. Oh, but Matthew, they say they are hoping their revenue increases either as a result of, quote, our traditional fundraising work or the new line of goods and services that are in development. So stay tuned for your retro forward together merch. Fucking Christ. Um, Or I I don't know, maybe they're going to do consulting or something through that. It's really unclear. I I, I mean, I don't know. If wishes were horses and beggars would ride, this is some nonsense. And like, I, like, I, I can't, I can't see... Like, it, it's really unfortunate because, like, I don't want politicians uh, massively overextending themselves on the understanding that they can, like, write this stuff off at the end of the day. But, like, I, I, I mean, really what it is is a argument for public funding of election campaigns. Yeah. Either that or just, like, 
refusing to let them have loans, which creates a different set of challenges. But yeah, this is an unfortunate story for everyone involved in many ways. But what is a fortunate story for Kennedy Stewart is that he's getting $100,000 personally after slapping down a lawsuit that we had talked about previously that was brought by members of the NPA when he called them extremists. Yes, so you've used the word slap that is, of course, a strategic lawsuit against public participation. Basically, the lawsuit that was against Kennedy Stewart was deemed a... It was originally a defamation lawsuit, but it was launched by members of the NPA. The Supreme Court Justice Wendy Baker said on March 20th that the defamation case was like a strategic lawsuit against public participation, basically designed to help chill his ability to participate in the public sphere. He had issued a news release in January 21 denouncing hate and extremism in the MPA response to media reports on the party's internal turmoil over a ideological shift to the right, which we have covered extensively on this show. That ideological shift was real, and I think pretending that it didn't happen was something that the gay was very interested in. And so instead of defending their you know retrograde abhorrent beliefs they decided to try and sue this is interesting because the the idea of the anti-slap bill and bringing it in is kind of to protect the little guy from being sued by the big person like the the average twitter user says something possibly a bit mean about a celebrity and then the celebrity tries to like sue them into silence and in this case you have like the mayor and then the board of a political party where the like there's this power imbalance there maybe but they're definitely not like neither of them is the david to the goliath but i also at the same time think it was a bullshit lawsuit oh yeah so. absolutely <laughs> like it's something that should be discouraged in, in our politics and i'm glad that this ruling exists Hopefully, it will dissuade similar-minded folk in future from trying such tactics against politicians with whom they disagree. Unless they are successful, unless they try to appeal and are successful. One thing, I haven't managed to pull up the whole judgment. There was a lot going on. But CBC does quote that the justice says that defamation claims themselves had, quote, substantial merit but that Stewart's statements were not made with malice, and Mr. Stewart was responding to news articles which had already put into the public arena the alleged hateful views of the NPA board. Yeah, like, I, that is troubling. Uh, and I don't know, like, it, I, I do kind of believe that there, there needs to be at least some kind of uh, public activities exemption from these kind of defamatory things, kind of like how you can't be sued for stuff you say in Parliament. Like, I, I don't want a blanket exemption, obviously, but, uh, like, there, there does need to be room for discourse. And it's not like he was saying things that, yeah, like, weren't out in the public mind and the zeitgeist at the time. Well, we'll come back to this, this meta discussion in a little bit, I think. But I want to get over to council now, where, even as we speak, parts of the Broadway plan that we talked about in the lead up to the last election, it was one of the last things that council did, are finally up for vote. Now, the Broadway plan was something that was largely positive in terms of densifying one of the most active corridors in the city of Vancouver. But like many things that previous council did 
left a lot to staff to determine and future councils to implement. So here we are at one of the major votes to implement it, and council has moved the Broadway plan forward, is the positive overall news. But what came forward in the staff reports were a number of sub-issues, and one of the key ones that came up was this idea of a pace of change policy. This came from staff as a recommendation that if Broadway is rezoned massively this quickly, there are already 96 expressions of interest, and if all of those moved forward, 2,000 renters would be displaced from relatively affordable places, and that renter protections that were put in place by the previous council could not accommodate all of those, and there would be a giant mess. So what if we only allowed five buildings a year to be redeveloped along Broadway, Matthew? Not only only five buildings a year, five buildings considered per year, which is nothing. That's nothing. There should be 96 expressions of interest. They're not all going to go through at once. And even if they were to, we don't have the construction capacity to do all of that. Like, there aren't the people. There aren't the cranes. Yeah, when I was first reading it, I saw, I, you know, I, I found myself understanding the rationale and even being sympathetic with it. One of the big concerns along the Broadway corridor is there is a lot of affordable rental along there already. And it's frustrating to see them take like a four-story rental building and go, this moderate density needs to go to high density now when that's not the biggest win we could do in the city. And I think that was probably just part of the problem with the Broadway plan is it was too limited in scope. It didn't cover all the single family homes that were right next door that could have easily been fit in here. But this is where we are, and it came up for debate. One city was pretty silent on it. Christine Boyle didn't speak too publicly in advance of the vote. DC seemed rather skeptical, and ultimately the policy was killed with only Green, Adrian Carr, and Pete Fry supporting the pace of change policy. Ken Sim declared a conflict on the issue, as I think he is a has an interest in one of the rental buildings along there, or something like that. It was yeah, or his business is in the Broadway zone. Fine. Yeah, sure. It didn't make a difference. <laughs> no, it it did not. Uh, and like, would it be bad if all of those buildings were replaced? Like, if those were the buildings that were replaced, rather than having single-family homes be the primary ones that saw redevelopment. Yes, it, it absolutely would. Uh, so should city council be cognizant of that as they are making their decisions on to what is going to get developed? Absolutely. Do I think that they need a policy on that? No, I not not yet. I Like, maybe if this problem indeed develops, then sure. Like, may, maybe take a look at this, but like... The only people that they were fettering with this policy would have been themselves. So, like, let these projects come forward. Give them the due consideration that they they do. Take into account the fact that you're going to be displacing people when a building gets built, if it's approved on the site of a pre-existing lot. And, uh, yeah, like, factor that into your decision-making. You're elected. Have, like, do your job. Or just... Pre-zone everything if we actually want to get stuff built. 
Yeah, well, sorry, I... I Obviously. <laughs> I, I We're was, not living in that world, Matthew. No, I was, I was living in... Not, e- not even the real world. I was living in, like, just an imaginary world where politicians were, like, fully aware of their faculties, I guess. <laughs> oh, one of the things that was included in the staff recommendation, though, that was more... I don't know. It was just another thing in there. But this... And we've only talked about it a couple times, I think, is the view cones that exist in the city of Vancouver. These are remnants of 1970s and 80s policies, largely to protect the livability of metro of the city of Vancouver by saying from these certain points, you must be able to see the mountains largely. Uh, but apparently, and I don't think either of us knew this, there is a view, co- a couple of view cones as well that say if you are in False Creek or downtown, you should have a good view of City Hall. I think the big reason that I've never talked that much about view cones is I, I don't care about them at all. Uh, I, I view them as kind of, uh, lol, uh, a extraneous amenity that uh, is often used by people as a cudgel to avoid, like, it's just another tool in the NIMBY toolkit, right? So, I, am I skeptical of of like the save the view cone lobby absolutely do i like a view of city hall yeah i'm not going to complain but uh, i don't know just make sure that the building that replaces it is nice like i i don't see the issue so what's really fascinating here in the daily hive coverage of this is there were nine view cones of city hall and those have now been reduced to two but kenneth chan here notes that these protected views of City Hall were created and forced for many years by city staff, but this policy was never approved by council. Amazing. Oh, incredible. (laughs) And I guess now that this has been approved, I'm presuming, I haven't looked at the exact breakdown of the vote, so I don't know if this got amended, but presumably now those two ones that remain, this is the view cone south of the North False Creek seawall near the southern foot of Davie Street and south from the middle of the Camby Street bridge deck are going to be added, officially added to the view protection guidelines. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's a nice, sure, I guess. You'll still be able to see City Hall from two spots in the city, at least. Thank, Thank God. And also, presumably, the places that we build that block them. Like, this is the thing that I I don't... If you build nice buildings, there isn't as much of an issue with the... Like, just build a nice-looking building. They built a nice-looking building. It was Vancouver City Hall, and... That's the last one we ever need to build. Everyone should gaze upon its glory. I mean, it's a nice-looking building, at least, but... It's fine. (laughs) Like, it's fine. I, like, I like Art Deco, but, like, it's not everyone's thing. It's like, <laughs> not a city-mandated architecture project. I, I don't know. There is there is a little part of me that thinks of Vancouver very much as, like, a group art project that everyone's sort of participating in, wittingly or unwillingly. It, it, you know, every, everyone is just sort of, like, participating in this giant pageant of Vancouver. Like, everyone who's out going for a run is just, like, participating in the art of the day. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that's neither here nor there. Speaking of the things that people are participating in, they won't be participating in a bike lane along Broadway, it sounds like. The City Council is currently on Speaker 33 of 42, as I say these words. 
but very soon they will be debating the Broadway Active Transportation Lanes report from city staff. This is also part of the Broadway plan, and it was a recommendation basically looking at whether they should shove a, a bike lane down Broadway. This was a big push by one city in the last council and during the election. And it sounds like the staff recommendation is to put that off because it's going to be mildly inconvenient and expensive in the short term. So stick, you know, stick to 8th Ave and 10th Ave if you're a cyclist. So like of all the places where like I, I am very supportive of cycling infrastructure. Don't don't get me wrong. But of all the places where I feel like a bike lane is least needed, it's the road that's in between the 10th, 11th Avenue bike lane and the 8th Avenue bike lane. <laughs> like, are, are, they, are they the highest class of bike lanes? No, not necessarily. But are they, like, predominantly bike roads? Yes, they are. Uh, I don't know that making sure that cyclists can move along Broadway, like, is should necessarily be the highest priority. I think the strongest argument for this is that this plan is already looking at redoing Broadway. So the staff report does say it's going to be going down from six lanes to four. This will include wider sidewalks, more pedestrian area, more socializing areas. And Christine Boyle's argument and many of the cycling advocates are if you're already doing that infrastructure work, put the bike lanes in now rather than coming back to this question in a decade or two because it'll just be easier to do it all at once. And there is a strong argument that if you have that separated bike lane along a major corridor like that, that benefits all of those businesses along there where people can easily stop their bike, hop into a restaurant, hop into a coffee shop or into whatever store they need and pick up some things. So like, there's value to it, but I also... You know, I take the point that there are places you can get better bang for your buck for cycles, bicycles. Yeah, like, don't get me wrong. I'm not opposed to a Broadway bike lane. But, like, were it to come down to, like, a an increased pedestrianization of parts of that street, not, like, true pedestrianization, but, like, making it more accessible, putting a row of, like, trees down to, to block, uh, like to block the, the cars from possibly jumping up onto the sidewalk or whatever. I, I don't know. I might I might go with that and make make it a more walkable street. and Because and, I, I kind of suspect that might help businesses more uh, than, than a cycling lane. It's all going to be better than what it is right now, at least. True. And I'm very excited to see the subway. Like, it's... I, I know it's still a couple of years off, but, like, I, I think that that is going to be a massive change to the area. Like he said, understating the, the whole thing massively, but uh, even if it doesn't changes. make it, even if it doesn't make it all the way to UBC right away. Yeah. All right. Well, one other thing that happened at council, I think this was yesterday or today, but Dan Fumano covered this quite well in the Vancouver sun is city council was considering as they do, the various grants the city gives out to nonprofits and social agencies around the city. And 
it's not usually too contentious because a lot of these groups rely on the city and they do good work and they get this money every year. But this year we have a new batch of councillors, including a number who are quite skeptical of the money that the city is giving out and are quite outspoken about it. And so one of the things that happened is amid all the reports, Councillor Peter Meisner moved an amendment, I'll just read it, that the general manager of CCS, the department that gives out the funding, be directed to report back with proposed requirements for all city grant programs that ensure that the city grant recipients are nonpartisan and that require grant recipients to communicate to, about, and with city officials in a respectful manner that is in keeping with the city's respectful workplace and related policies and requirements. Pete Fry moved a successful amendment to scratch that bit about them being nonpartisan. But during the debates on this, there were some wild comments from Meisner and from Brian Montague of ABC, basically talking about how concerned they were by comments on social media and to the press from nonprofits that seemed to malign the mayor and other councillors. And they said, you know, we have this respectful workplace policy in place for council and for our staff. Shouldn't they have to abide by that when they're talking about us? I mean, re respect is one thing, obeisance is another. Uh, like, you entered politics of your own volition. You should be able to take some, some like, criticism. If people are, like, harassing you, there are opportunities to, to deal with that. But, like, like they, they, shouldn't, they shouldn't be required to, to, like, bow down and scrape before you. Uh, especially, like, if you're giving them money, these are, these are, like hard-working social service organizations that do a lot of good for the city and have can like very have can have very legitimate policy disagreements with the people in power it's good that they are able to have those policy disagreements with people in power and it's also good that they're able to call the mayor an asshole if they want to like your your funding shouldn't depend on that like to to run i don't know a shelter or uh, like an animal rescue or whatever. Yeah, these are, this is wildly concerning, kind of like when we talk about freedom of expression, it, this is where it comes down as like, this is an issue. Meisner specifically in the meeting, I guess, asked staff if the media and relations communications department could monitor public comments made by these organizations, quote, flagging those media stories with hostile comments that would be contrary to the policy. Staff responded. They cannot. They yeah, absolutely that, cannot. There, there's a lot of shit out there. It's probably not worth doing, to paraphrase. Brian Montague, I believe, asked at one point if the nonprofits receiving money had been audited by third parties, like not themselves or by staff, but like fully independent audits, or if there had been full background checks of all of the board and staff members of these nonprofits, which no is the I, answer to both of those, and nor should there be. No, but like... Are they meeting their Societies Act requirements? Then fine. Like, whatever. That, yeah, that should the be CRA the standard. The CRA exists. Like, uh. we, we, don't, we don't need the Vancouver Morality Police deciding, like, how grant money is being allocated based on the whims of some, like, Snowflake City councillors. Yeah. The final amendment moved by Meisner did pass unanimously as amended by Fry, which is a little bit disappointing to me. This is just having staff report back on possible languages, but at like we've seen the respectful workplace policy, I think, come up a couple times within council 
or at least at the park board highlighting that these kind of inter like it's one thing for staff to have to face you know abuse and harassment they don't deserve that neither do counselors but like you said earlier about there being protections for harsh language even between Mm -hmm. counselors and in politics and criticism this is an attempt i think many see to use these kind of like hr protections to silence criticism and it's a real danger yeah like is is there always going to be a level of tension between free speech and like the the kind of respectful workplace policies and and that that he's referring to yeah but like we should continue to err on on the side of like allowing there to be vigorous public debate like staff is one thing politics is another like do do politicians deserve this i don't know sometimes no one here has cited any examples of things they think are egregious or merit further scrutiny no speaking in generalities that that's a very well taken point too i i mean like it's very transparent what this is it's like an attempt to silence critics of of the newly elected regime at city hall one thing that's also notable here is brian montague ultimately decided to recuse himself or he didn't officially recuse himself he just left the meeting when it came time to vote for the individual grants he's been an outspoken critic as well and wants to see the whole grant program overhauled and i think it's an interesting trend that we're seeing within abc is rather than any counselor voting out of line with their colleagues they just disappear from the meeting when those votes come to pass that's i mean that's cowardly is what that is it's it suggests their caucus solidarity is stronger than their like moral principles as individual counselors yeah that 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 is what that sounds like actually (laughs) <laughs> Which, uh, like, it's a credit to ABC, but it's going to be interesting mid to longer term to see whether those tensions boil over more publicly at some point, because they clearly exist. Yeah, absolutely. We see that happening in other municipalities already. We've, we've with some, well, no small amount of, of uh, hilarity and delight, been covering the situation in Harrison Hot Springs. Another situation is happening in Lions Bay, where council is having a very difficult time coalescing, shall we say. Yeah, I haven't even been following Lions Bay. I followed this story in North Saanich, where Councillor Brett Smith, Smith has now resigned for an offhanded comment, as he described it. He was frustrated by a decision not to live stream an advisory council meeting. He said it was done in a very political way by the mayor and then replied to him that, thank you, Mr. Hitler. Dear Lord. Because uh, as we all know, the thing that Hitler was most known for was his reluctance to be seen in public. All of this has led the province to be incredibly frustrated because the last thing the provincial government wants to do is micromanage lower levels of government. Uh, We mentioned on the previous episode about how Harrison Hot Springs has begged the non-existent inspector of municipalities for help. (laughs) And so they have invented one and are appointing (laughs) or are actually seeking to hire a municipal advisor to have everyone sort their shit out. 
Yeah, so basically the province is hiring a babysitter, and hopefully these municipalities will be able to... I, I don't know. How do these people work in their day-to-day jobs? Like, I, you're, you don't... Like, you don't get to pick your co-workers. Like, how... how most of the time, anyway. Mo- most of us, us don't have that luxury. You can't possibly have always agreed with everyone... At, that you've ever worked with how 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 is it so difficult for you to be civil the city council meeting of tassis descended into a shouting match according to justin mcelroy's reporting with one councillor stealing a gavel from another children children <laughs> the grown-ups up. are here and they're sending in an advisor to help sue this is ridiculous <laughs> Let's run through a series of other stories and follow-ups. Just quickly, coming back to Vancouver, TransLink, and mentioning the SkyTrain earlier, is going to try to put a 30-story tower at the corner of Broadway and Arbutus as a giant middle finger to Bill Tillman, personally. Well, I hope the shadow falls directly upon his house uh, and gives him a little bit of shade so he can cool down and chill the fuck out. I can't wait to hear about how this is destroying the neighborhood culture and the heritage business of the dry cleaner that it is going to replace. Won't someone think of the very difficult to launder clothes? I used that dry cleaner once when I lived in that area. It's fine. Well, you've, I don't, you've, yeah. <laughs> you've convinced me. <laughs> Speaking of development, the Squamish Nation has said... You like Sanok? We're going to do it everywhere we can. They have launched a land use strategy planning session to maximize their value out of the lands they have in North Van, in West Van, in the city of Squamish, and on the Sunshine Coast, looking at how much housing and industrial use they can do to build and make money for their nation, which is pretty cool to see. I, I kind of, it makes me think of this little counterfactual idea where if, like, settlers hadn't come and stolen all the Squamish's land, that, like, Vancouver would be this massive metropolis because of the Squamish's predisposition to build. It's hard to say if that is a I know, it's disposition. Yeah, well, yeah, inspired <laughs> by necessity or inherent to the culture, but... I'm excited to see what they do with their land that they can freely build on, especially on the North Shore. Meanwhile, in Burnaby, they are considering a step Vancouver took over, I think, half a decade ago, about a decade ago, of allowing laneway homes. Yeah, it was about a decade ago. Vancouver still hasn't figured it out. Approval process in Vancouver is still a giant mess. See Frances Beulah's series on her trying to build a laneway home for more information on that. But speaking of approvals in Burnaby, as we mentioned on a recent episode, Burnaby was going to try and dispose of some of its parkland using what was termed the alternative approval process. Yeah, on March 20th, they decided not to do that because they hated it. It's, it took us a while to figure out. And then we went, oh, it's kind of cool. It's kind of a neat way to not do a referendum. But everyone kind of realized it's a way to not do a referendum, and they'd much rather do that, and now the city is just not going to do either. Oh, so they're just not going to build it? Yeah, they're cancelling the project entirely, and they're going to look somewhere else for their green waste facility. Okay, the park well, people want. <laughs> it's a choice. Yeah. It's not necessarily the wrong one. Like, I told the Burnaby Beacon, 
one of the problems with the alternative approval process, which required 10% of residents of Burnaby or voters to sign a petition saying they opposed it to kill the project. The problem is if that doesn't happen, the city doesn't actually know if people were well enough informed and supported the project or if they just didn't hear about the issue. I mean, but that's that's the goal, obviously, of this type of process, <laughs> is for these kinds of things to scoot by under the radar. I guess enough people heard about it. Something not as many have probably been following as closely as the ongoing lawsuit involving Asionia, the developer Spanish company that is enmeshed in a lawsuit with Metro Vancouver over the development of, or the non-development of a water treatment facility. I think we talked about this previously in this specific angle. There was some marvelous shade thrown by like actual city bureaucrats who were like, what the fuck is going on here? They're like, they appear to have completely walked away from the project. We do not understand what is happening. And then a twist came a few weeks or months ago when it turned out that one of the staff members of that company is the daughter of the chief administrative officer of the city of Coquitlam, who happened to have the password of the mayor of Coquitlam, Richard Stewart. And so this daughter seems to have, quote unquote, hacked, just basically opened a laptop with some confidential meeting minutes from Metro Vancouver that Richard Stewart was in and given those to her company, which let them sneak through certain parts or corporate espionage stuff. Richard Stewart has now sent a letter to Asionia saying password, maybe that I, I hope he's changed his password, but he says it's a common practice among Metro Vancouver mayors to share their passwords with the CAOs to which the company has said, so these confidential documents aren't really that confidential then are they? In which case the Coquitlam mayor may have just sunk the Metro Vancouver side of this ongoing lawsuit, at least on this issue. It's a little more complicated than that. I'll put the Tri-City News link in there, but Jesus. Yeah, that's some bad uh, hygiene there, and honestly, honestly, I think that's worth looking into. Uh, Like, oof, that's bad. Finally, uh, TransLink is getting a bit of a bailout from the BC government to the tune of $479 million to help address declining ridership. This money is hoped to stem any potential layoffs and potential root cuts as ridership is creep back up to pre-pandemic levels. Right now, ridership is about 82% of pre-pandemic levels, but revenue collection is only at about 75%. Lots of fair hoppers, I guess. I I guess so. I'm not. Yeah, it's I, unclear really... exactly why those numbers don't line up exactly. Maybe people are buying cheaper options, but the point is, TransLink is struggling, and this is much needed money to keep it afloat. It's not surprising, but it's it's good to see it come through. We love our transit system here. We do indeed. So. We end every episode of the Cambia Report with a little segment we like to call Vancouverada, and on on a time that China attempts to be parachuting candidates into our political system, kind of, sort of, and since we are coming up on the 
anniversary of Incorporation Day. We thought we would bring you a little story that involves both Incorporation Day and parachutes. Yes, this comes from Daniel Francis's fairly recent, I think this is a 2021 or 2022 book, Becoming Vancouver, A History, in one of the newer sections. He talks about the centennial, which was held in 1986, which was also the expo year. In this section, he talks about how mayor at the time, Mike Harcourt, was not a big fan of expo, but he did come around on the idea of the centennial and had a big blast with it. The centennial planning started in 1979, following a failed attempt by Vancouver to win the 1988 Winter Olympics. That was led then Mayor Volrich and a Conservative Party organizer. When they didn't get the chance to host the 88 Olympics that went to Calgary, they decided to just use all the energy they had and put it into a centennial bash. Mike Harcourt became mayor in 1980, and as this rolled around, they planned out a variety of community-based initiatives, including arts and athletic events and heritage-related programs. Quote, the highlight of the centennial was a huge incorporation day party in Stanley Park on April 6, which attracted 400,000 people. On this occasion, organizers planned for a parachutist carrying in a large bouquet of flowers to jump from a plane and land at the feet of, of Governor General Jean Sauvé. The first jumper overshot the mark and put down with his flowers in a clump of trees, but the possibility had been foreseen with the second parachutist landing right in front of Her Excellency. Always have a second candidate. So the moral of that story is uh, always have a backup and yeah, happy Incorporation Day, everyone. We will see you in a couple of weeks. For Leg and Boot Media, I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. Good night. <laughs>